Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, welcome back. And uh, let's bring you up to speed now with some of the day's other news. And there's plenty to get to this Wednesday, including fresh political peril for UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who apologised today for attending a 2020 party at Downing Street during COVID lockdowns. More on all that in just a few moments. But first, let me give you a look at the stock market picture. And we remain on track for a solidly higher open. Futures are advancing even after the latest read on US inflation, showing prices rising at a 7% year-over-year rate for the month of December. It's the hottest inflation read in some four decades, but it did come in as expected. Investors, I think, breathing a sigh of relief to some degree that prices didn't take an even more substantial jump. The number pretty much priced into the markets, I think, already too. That said, Fed Chair Jay Powell warning Congress yesterday that rates may have to rise at a faster pace than markets are currently inspecting and anticipating if inflation does not cool from here. He says higher inflation threatens the ongoing U.S. jobs recovery. And we're going to cover all of that now. So first, rage and regret. The British Prime Minister has apologised for a garden party at 10 Downing Street, which he now admits he went to while the country was under lockdown. Boris Johnson said he understands the anger people are feeling and that he must take responsibility. I want to apologise. I know the rage they feel with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself the rules are not being properly followed by the people who make the rules. And though I cannot anticipate the conclusions of the current inquiry, I have learned enough to know that there were things we simply did not get right. Sama Abdelaziz joins us now from London. Sama, the key with apologising is you have to actually admit that you attended something in order to do it, which for the first time actually we've got here. I'm almost tempted to take cover before you give me your views. What do we make of what happened today? Look, Julia, finally, finally, after weeks of controversy, weeks of reports of garden parties and Christmas parties and bring your own booze parties, the Prime Minister has said sorry, sort of. Here's the thing. He hasn't admitted any wrongdoing. He hasn't admitted that COVID rules were broken. In fact, he said that that event he attended is within the framework of what's allowed. It was a matter of public perception and that he's leaving it all up to the inquiry. This is a contradiction that the opposition Labour leader was very quick to call out. Take a listen. After months of deceit and deception, the pathetic spectacle of a man who's run out of road. His defence, his defence, that he didn't realise he was at a party. (laughs) It's so ridiculous that it's actually offensive to the British public. He's finally been forced to admit what everyone knew, that when the whole country was locked down, he was hosting boozy parties in Downing Street. Is he now going to do the decent thing and resign? 
There you hear it, Julia, a call for resignation in a very boisterous prime minister's question today. These are often quick and witty sessions, but this one was particularly difficult for the prime minister. You could see him at moments flinching as yet again MPs pointed at him saying he was hosting boozy parties while people were dying of COVID-19. It is a terrible allegation, a terrible accusation, but it's not just now about how many parties there were, or who was in attendance or where they took place. It's about how the prime minister has handled this because yet Yes, he's apologized, but again, there's no admission of wrongdoing. And he's apologized for one incident, one event. You still have that dizzying array, that dizzying list of accusations of parties ranging from the holiday season of 2020 to the summer of 2020. All of that, of course, putting into question whether or not the prime minister is fit to lead. Does he have the moral authority to rule the country when... In the first instance, his government is being accused of violating those rules. And in the second instance, he's being accused of outright lying to the public about them. Julia? You know, it was funny. Uh, Keir Starmer, the uh, leader of the opposition, actually was very punchy today. You played that little clip of him, too. The quote that I pulled was when he said, the only question is, will the British public kick him out? Will his party kick him out? Or will he do the decent thing and resign? And I know you've been testing the pulse of the British public here, as has a recent poll by YouGov. Talk me through what we've seen in terms of popular opinion of this prime minister now. I can tell you in the last few weeks, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has provided a great deal of material if you want to have some memes on social media, just do a quick Google of Twitter, and there's plenty of jokes there. But this is not just a laughing matter. We're really talking here about the moral authority of the prime minister to lead during a public health crisis. The opposition has said he is a threat to public health and safety because of this controversy. The latest snap poll, the one that you mentioned, it showed that two-thirds of adults in the UK would like to see the prime minister resign. Again, this is a snap poll, a small sample, only about a thousand people, but it gives you a picture. And what stood out to me, Julia, is that that was an increase of 12% from a snap poll that happened when this controversy first broke out in December. So you can see that outrage, that anger, it is growing. Now, the technicalities. How does Prime Minister Boris Johnson step away from office? How would that play out if it did play out? It would take a mutiny within his own party, Julia. It would take his own party members turning against him and choosing to push him out. Right now, that is very far from a likely scenario. The question is also who would replace Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So there's really the wheels of politics here that might keep Prime Minister Boris Johnson in seat in his office for longer, but you're you just can't imagine how on earth he could win back hearts and minds after this controversy, Julia. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about last night, the picture of the Queen at Prince Philip's funeral when she was on her own. I think we've got the image here. Um, yeah. Say no more. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you so much for that there. Hmm. Game set and a matter of growing urgency. Novak Djokovic is admitting he did not immediately isolate after testing positive for COVID last month and is also apologising for the debacle involving an apparently false travel declaration. Paula Hancock is covering every twist and turn from Melbourne and the twists and turns keep coming. And uh, the latest, we now and have an apology from Novak Djokovic that he should have been isolating and didn't.
That's right, Julia. It, it was an apology of sorts. He actually uh, started this statement on social media with pointing out he was going to clarify uh, some, some misinformation, uh, where in actual fact what he admits to is, is pretty much what had been reported anyway. But he does uh, narrow down on that timeline that we have been looking at, at uh, when he tested positive for COVID-19, pointing out that on December 14th in uh, Belgrade, the Serbian capital, he went to a basketball match uh, and said that many people tested positive after that. So he then decided to have a PCR test on December 16th and December 17th while he was waiting for that result he said he took a rapid antigen test which was negative saying he then went to a number of public events. We saw the photos of him uh, maskless at those events uh, and then said after those events is when he discovered that he was in fact positive but on December 18th the next day he still went ahead with a photo shoot and a media interview uh, pointing out that he didn't want to let the, uh, the journalist down. Now he does point out in his statements that on reflection this was an error of judgment and then when it comes to the travel declaration that you have to fill in coming into this country uh, there was an error he admits once again uh, and saying that it wasn't him that filled it out it was his support team but what it was was the part where it asks if you are going to travel or have traveled in the 14 days before arrival in Australia uh, and the no box was ticked in fact, uh, it's understood that he was in both Spain and in Serbia uh, during the two weeks before he came here. Uh, now, he said on that one, it was a, quote, human error and, can, and certainly not deliberate. Now, we do know also that the Australia Border Force is expanding its investigation uh, into this issue. Uh, this is according to a source close to the investigation, looking at possible inconsistencies in documents related to the PCR results and also uh, Djokovic's movements in the days after testing positive. Uh, so as the ABF is expanding its investigation into this, remember we're still waiting for the Immigration Minister Alex Hawke to decide whether he personally will get involved and revoke uh, Djokovic's visa. Presumably, he will wait until the ABF investigation is complete. We don't know that for sure, but it, it would make sense. So uh, we could be waiting even longer to see what exactly is going to happen with this. Hmm. An apology of sorts and an agent who might need an eye test, apparently. Hmm. We await what they find in this. Paula Hancock, thank you so much, as always. Now authorities in Chenjing, China, have tightened COVID restrictions and begun a new round of mass testing. It comes days after the country's first community transmission of Omicron was confirmed in the city of 14 million people. Tougher measures are now triggering fears of economic disruption. CNN's David Culvert joins us from Beijing. David, great to see you. We can talk about the restrictions, but we've become very familiar, I think, with China's zero COVID policy. What I want to ask you is whether you're hearing any rumblings of perhaps changes that are going to need to be made to the Beijing Olympics and concerns surrounding the safety there. Hey, Julia, good to be with you. As far as the Olympics are concerned, I mean, this is a show that must go on. That's certainly how Beijing has portrayed it. When you look at the past two years and are covering this virus and this outbreak, China has tried to demonstrate really to the rest of the world that their handling, this zero COVID approach, is the right way. And the way that they wanted to capstone all of that was through the Olympics. This was going to be their opportunity to demonstrate to the rest of the world that they've got it under control, that the contact tracing, the mass testing, the heavy lockdowns and targeted ones that are playing out right now are worth it. But they were hoping that by this point there were no outbreaks outside of what might be coming in through athletes and staff and media for the Olympic bubble. 
they're dealing with a worst case scenario. You mentioned Tianjin. That's about 80 miles from where we are. It's too close for comfort. You've got folks who commute back and forth. That has basically come to a halt. The government's very careful with their wording. They don't want to demonstrate that this is a country that in its entirety is shutting down travel, but travel is heavily restricted. Earlier this week, I flew in from Shanghai, got multiple tests to do that. You're constantly checking in with local community and health officials to make sure they're aware of your negative test results. And you have QR codes that could potentially change if you perhaps come into contact with somebody who is a confirmed case. That's how strict this is. If you're in a district or a city that has one local confirmed case, Julia, then you are not allowed to enter Beijing for 14 days. Now, the timing of this is also really concerning because we're not only a few weeks away from the start of the Winter Olympics, but we're also a few weeks away from the Chinese New Year. The Lunar New Year is when you have hundreds of millions of people traveling, the largest annual human migration. And so they're putting out a lot of cash incentives and bonuses and trying to keep people from leaving their workplace cities and going back to their hometown. It's really quite sad because this is now at least the second year that they've seen these restrictions. And these folks, many of the migrant workers, they only get one time a year for the most part to go back home and see their families. And here we are in the midst of another in which they'll probably have to stay put. So it's concerning for a lot of those individuals who really feel like they're becoming more and more disconnected from family. But it's also concerning for the government here. Beijing wanted this to be a performance that many would be talking about. Instead, now they're dealing with Omicron as well as Delta and trying to extinguish the many outbreaks that are keeping folks, in some cases, locked into their homes. You've got 20 million targeted lockdown uh, playing out right now, and you've got 20 million people who are just confined. I mean, Xi'an mm-hmm. is a city, Julia, that they have had 13 million who, for the past three weeks or so, have not been able to leave their homes. It is a really difficult situation and one that Beijing is not happy with, no question. Yeah, so much attention and for all the wrong reasons. David, great to have you with us, as always. David Kohler there in Beijing. We're back after this with the market open. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on this Tuesday and higher consumer prices not spoiling the party. Wall Street rising for a second straight day with technology stocks. The Nasdaq there up some 1% in early trade. The U.S. reporting before the bell that consumer price inflation rose at a 7% year-over-year rate last month. That's the hottest read in almost 40 years. The numbers, though, were pretty much priced in and as expected. That said, Fed Chair Jay Powell warning yesterday that prices could remain elevated for some time. Christine Romans joins me now. It makes me laugh for Christine when the investors go, yeah, yeah, it, it was what we expected. It's like, yes, but it's 7% price rises year on year. I know. Don't you love how Wall Street works? You know, already baked in. They already knew it was going to be awful and terrible. <laughs> right. They knew it was going to be awful and terrible. And now it is. They're like, oh, I'm so glad it wasn't more awful and terrible. But look, for so many families, these are real numbers. I mean, you dig in these numbers here. And I'm looking at um, I'm looking at used car prices just from November to December. You saw a three and a half percent pop in, in used car prices. I mean, that's amazing for a one-month move. So we're still seeing these disruptions and this pent-up demand from consumers really driving uh, driving these prices higher. The question 
question, though, Julia, is where do we go from here? I mean, mm-hmm. the big debate among economists this morning is what are the signs of peaking? Will it peak next month? Are there signs in here that it is peaking? We know it would have been worse if it hadn't been for um, falling energy prices in the month. And those have picked up again in the beginning of this year. So that could be uh, Christine, could hold I'm back just going to have peak. to stop you there because uh, Wendy Sherman is speaking. She's the deputy secretary of state of the United States and her follow up to the meeting this morning. Let's listen in. We can identify solutions that enhance the security of all. We are in the midst of an intense week of diplomatic engagements in multiple forums across Europe. On Monday, I led the U.S. delegation to an extraordinary session of the bilateral U.S.-Russia Strategic Stability Dialogue in Geneva. Yesterday, I met here in Brussels with NATO allies and EU partners, and again this morning, to share what we heard from the Russians at the SSD. I assured them, and I want to repeat now again, that the United States holds firmly to the policy of nothing about you without you when it comes to our allies and partners, including Ukraine. We will not make decisions about Ukraine without Ukraine, about Europe without Europe, or about NATO without NATO, or the OSCE without the OSCE. Today, the NATO-Russia Council met for the first time since 2019, and I was honored to lead the U.S. delegation to this important forum for discussion. As Secretary General Stoltenberg said earlier, it was a very serious and direct conversation. Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Grushko and Deputy Defense Minister Fomin both spoke extensively and shared Russia's proposals and perspectives around European security and the future of NATO. The United States and our NATO allies were united in our responses to Deputy Foreign Minister Grushko and Deputy Minister of Defense Fomin and their comments, including when it comes to certain core Russian proposals that are simply non-starters. Together, the United States and our NATO allies made clear we will not slam the door shut on NATO's open-door policy, a policy that has always been central to the NATO alliance. As a defensive alliance, solely NATO is a defensive alliance, NATO exists to protect its member states. NATO has never expanded through force or coercion or subversion. It is countries' sovereign choice to choose to come to NATO and say they want to join. And NATO has repeatedly affirmed, most recently in June 2021, that, quote, quote, the alliance does not seek confrontation and poses no threat to Russia, unquote. The United States and our NATO allies reiterated our shared commitment to diplomacy as the most durable path for building lasting security and our willingness to engage Russia on security issues in a meaningful and reciprocal process. In today's meeting, the NATO allies offered their views on areas where NATO and Russia could make progress together in a way that strengthens security for all of us, and indeed for the world. These include reciprocal actions around risk reduction and transparency, improved communication, and arms control. We told the Russian delegation that we are united in our position, that escalation does not create optimum conditions for diplomacy, to say the least. That is now the situation we face. 
As we speak, Russia has amassed more than 100,000 troops along Ukraine's borders in an unprovoked military buildup. Moscow is using increasingly aggressive rhetoric and spreading propaganda and disinformation, claiming that it is Ukraine seeking a conflict, not Russia. Untrue. It bears repeating that it was Russia that invaded Ukraine in 2014. It is Russia that continues to fuel a war in eastern Ukraine that has claimed nearly 14,000 Ukrainian lives. And now it's Russia's actions which are causing a renewed crisis, not only for Ukraine, but for all of Europe and for us. As I noted, we and our NATO allies believe there are some areas where we can work together with Russia and make real progress. At the SSD in Geneva on Monday, the United States raised several preliminary ideas where our two countries could take reciprocal actions that would be in our security interest and improve strategic stability. We told the Russian delegation we are prepared to discuss those ideas in greater detail at any time. Secretary General Stoltenberg opened today's meeting by expressing his hope that the NATO-Russia Council could convene again soon to have deeper discussions on the areas where we can make progress together to strengthen security for all. That is a position shared by all the NATO allies. If Russia walks away, however, it will be quite apparent they were never serious about pursuing diplomacy at all. That is why, collectively, we are preparing for, ever, for every eventuality. We have made it clear, and we told the Russians directly again today, that if Russia further invades Ukraine, there will be significant costs and consequences well beyond what they faced in 2014. In my meetings yesterday with our EU partners, we discussed our work together and with the G7 to prepare coordinated economic measures, measures that would exact a severe ongoing price for Russia's economy and financial system, should Russia take that fateful step. Russia's actions have caused this crisis, and it is on Russia to de-escalate tensions and give diplomacy the chance to succeed. Informed by the meetings we have held so far, as well as by tomorrow's OSCE Permanent Council meeting in Vienna, Governments in all three diplomatic tracks, the bilateral track, the NATO track, the OSCE track, will reflect on these week's discussions and determine appropriate next steps. We remain ready to continue to engage with Russia. The heavy pace of bilateral and multilateral engagements this week demonstrates that the United States and our allies and partners are not dragging our feet. It is Russia that has to make a stark choice, de-escalation and diplomacy, or confrontation and consequences. We expect, and had expected, that the Russian delegations at the SSD here at the NATO-Russia Council and tomorrow at the OSCE will have to report back to President Putin, who we all hope will choose peace and security. Thank you again for your attention. Happy to take your questions. We're going to leave uh, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of State there speaking and answering questions. In the meantime, I want to bring in Ambassador William Taylor. He was charged affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev in 2019 and 2020 and served as ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. Ambassador, great to have you on the show with us. Once again, we heard it from the Secretary General of NATO this morning and again there from the United States side, punchy comments saying, quite frankly, Russia's demands are not on the table. And yet Russia stayed for over four hours. Is that a positive sign in your mind? Julia, I think it is a positive sign. 
Um, as you say, the United States, Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman, um, has been very clear to rebuff and just entirely reject the main demand that the Russians have been laying on the table. That is uh, to never allow Ukraine into NATO. They've just flatly denied that, rejected that. And uh, the Russians continue to be there, which I think is a, a, to, to continue to, to participate in these conversations both on Monday and today, and we hope tomorrow. And we hope they will come sit down and talk about the areas that are, that are available to talk about. So I think, yes, Julia, it's a good sign that they're still engaged. You said coming into these meetings too, Ambassador, that the West must bolster its defense, its defenses, it must prepare sanctions. Do you believe that should be going on at the same time, even while they wait for President Putin and the Russian side to decide on next steps, continuing talks? Because I, at that stage, we don't have I, a promise on that yet. You're exactly right. You're exactly mm -hmm. right. And yes, I think we should be preparing the consequences. As uh, Secretary Sherman just said, there are consequences that President Putin has to take into account if he decides to invade. So this is, these are these are deterrent measures, uh, the, the measures that will deter President Putin from making that decision to invade Ukraine. So these measures are both economic sanctions that we've heard about that will be severe, uh, that the Russians are clearly concerned about, uh, as well as, as military options, which is to continue to provide Ukraine with the means to defend itself. Um, and to continue to bolster, reinforce the, the NATO allies on the eastern flank of NATO. So, yes, I think it's very appropriate to try to indicate to President Putin, as he's making this decision whether or not to invade, that there will be severe consequences. Uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman was quite clever there. She sort of threw the gauntlet down to some degree because she said, if you walk away now and walk away from these talks, then we'll assume that you were never serious in the first place. What's the risk of that, that the buildup of troops on the Ukrainian border was for a greater purpose and that further aggression will happen irrespective of the debate and the diplomacy that's taking place this week? That's exactly the worry, Julia. You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it is possible. We don't know what's in President Putin's mind. No, no one does. I mean, only he does. Um, but it is possible that he has all along decided that he's going to invade Ukraine one way or the other, sooner or later, probably sooner, because he's got all these troops poised on the border. He can't keep them there long uh, without damage, uh, with major costs. So he may have, may have already decided he's going to do that in any case. In which case, it's good that we have done the preparation. We, NATO, we, the United States, we, the Europeans, have made the, the strong, coordinated preparations for economic sanctions or military response. Uh, so this, this has both effects. It has both the effect of deterrence in the hopes that he hasn't made up his mind, but it's also plans for what we will do if he does invade, if he's already decided to do that. Hmm. Ambassador Taylor, fantastic to speak to you and get your wisdom today. Thank you so much. We'll speak to you soon. Now, breaking news into CNN, a judge in the U.S. has rejected Prince Andrew's bid to dismiss Virginia Gouffre's civil lawsuit. She's accusing him of sexually abusing her when she was 17. Max Foster joins us now. Max, how much of a surprise is this? And this means that Prince Philip is going to face a civil sex case. 
Prince Andrew, yes. Uh, I mean, it's a major development. Uh, Prince Andrew had tried consistently on various levels to get this case thrown out of the US court. Prince Andrew very much engaging in this case. Initially, he wasn't engaging at all. So then we got to this latest attempt to have the case thrown out based on a 2009 agreement between Jufre and Epstein, where she agreed not to pursue cases like this. Uh, that was the interpretation, at least on Prince Andrew's side. Uh, Jufre's side said that 2009 agreement doesn't apply to this New York case. The judge appears to be saying there are various interpretations of this 2009 agreement. The upshot is, uh, Julia, that they have to proceed with the case in order to work out all of the legal ramifications of that 2009 agreement. Uh, the upshot ultimately is that this now goes to depositions. Both sides will ask uh, for witness statements effectively. Prince Andrew will certainly be asked to do that for Jufre's team and potentially go to trial in September, October, around that time. So Prince Andrew has lost in his attempt to get this case thrown out. It proceeds. It's a huge problem for him. It's it's a small chart for Jufre, although she ultimately wants justice, she says. It's a huge problem as well, as you can imagine, for the royal family. I was going to ask you that next, Max. The ripple effect on the royal family at this moment. Well, what they've got here is a situation where Prince Andrew's um, trials and tribulations of the most sordid kind, the allegations at least, are reflecting on the royal brand because he's integral to the royal brand. He's stepped back from royal duties, but he's a senior royal, whatever way you look at it, very close to the Queen. Uh, and it's being tarnished, that brand, the longer it goes on. So it would have worked for the brand if this case was thrown out, but at the same time, the monarchy can't be seen to be interfering in the legal process. So they Okay, I think we've lost Max there. I'll thank Max Foster there. As you saw there, the US judge, a US judge rejecting Prince Andrew's bid to dismiss the sex abuse accuser's lawsuit. More to come on that. Stay with us. We'll be back. Welcome back to First Move. Mistakes and misinformation. Novak Djokovic says he wants to clarify events around his positive COVID test and his immigration saga in Australia. In a social media statement, the tennis star now admits a mistake was made in the declaration he made to enter Australia, saying his agent filled it in and got it wrong. Djokovic still hopes to compete in the Australian Open, which begins on Monday, but Australia's immigration minister is still considering whether to cancel his visa and have him removed from the country. Amanda Davies is here with us. And uh, Amanda, one of the joys, as many of them, of being in London is to actually get to speak to you off air as well as um, on air together. And you and I were discussing not only the current situation surrounding Novak Djokovic, but given his ongoing unvaccinated status, and we're not making a judgment about that, but is this kind of the future for most of the Opens that he tries to attend around the world? There's going to be challenges. Yeah, and I think, Julia, from what we've heard of Novak Djokovic over the last 18 months, what we saw in terms of the, the printout, the documentation around the interviews with the Australian uh, immigration process, you have to presume that his stance on vaccination isn't going to change and he is going to stay unvaccinated going forward. So then 
you suspect we're going to be having these same conversations that are playing out in Australia uh, when he, if he wants to take part in the French Open or Wimbledon or the US Open. And Novak Djokovic is a player who's never been afraid to carve his own path in life. And you have to argue on the tennis court, it's been very successful for him, hasn't it? You know, I remember speaking to him and his wife, Yelena, in Belgrade, and they talked about their fight against the odds growing up uh, amidst the the Yugoslav war and, and the conflict in that area and having to fight against that to become a professional tennis player. He was struggling with his fitness not that long ago in his career and he decided going um, vegan and gluten-free was the way forward in that. He's not afraid to do that. But what we're talking about here is trust and a relationship mm. with the tennis community. And it's, it's one thing saying you're not going to be vaccinated. It's another perhaps putting down the wrong ticket in a box, in a, an immigration form. But the point we've got to now where he's admitted he tested positive for COVID and despite that went and conducted an interview with one of the members of the, the tennis community That is an issue of trust amongst journalists, amongst players. This is a very tight-knit community and they rely on each other, particularly over the last 18 months, to be keeping each other safe. And we already had um, Rafa Nadal speaking out, didn't we, saying it's very simple. Novak Djokovic could be vaccinated and this problem goes away. But we seem to have crossed a line now and it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens moving forward. Do you think they'll see it as a betrayal and that in some way he perceives himself above them or do you think it was just an honest mistake, Amanda? Do you think he'll be forgiven because of his status and because of his skill? I don't think he will necessarily be forgiven. What you can't take away from him is what he has achieved and what he has done Mm. in tennis. There is no doubt. You look at the facts and the figures. He has been the best player on the men's tour for a consistent period of time. And if he was to win this Australian Open, it wouldn't only be a record 10th Australian Open. It would see him become the most decorated men's player of all time with that 21st Grand Slam title. That cannot be denied. Uh, What happens off the court in terms of his relationships is a, a very different matter. Some legacy. Amanda, great to have you with us. Thank you. Amanda Davis there. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Linda Kincaid is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.